You got to make a funny, John. Yes. You got to be the intro <laughs> or the outtake. No pressure. Uh-huh. No. I, oh, I do have an outtake. For people who listen to us on double speed, that is incorrect of you. Don't Stop it. Don't do that. <laughs> what is wrong with you? We take time to artfully craft the speed at which we talk and edit. Don't. No. You take the full hour of listening to us. <laughs> Welcome to Book Talk Etc., a podcast bound to grow your TBR. I'm Tina. And I'm Renee. And this is a conversational podcast about books and more from two Midwest mood readers who are easily distracted by new releases. And today we're talking about banned books with our special guest and the third member of Book Talk Etc., Jonathan. If you enjoy listening, we'd love for you to follow us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have a minute, please consider leaving us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or sharing us on social media. All of this truly helps other book lovers find us. Hi, Renee. Hi, Jonathan. Hey. Hey. Hi. Yes, I'm here. I'm in the studio. I'm in our brand new studio. Yes, the brand new studio slash office slash library. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. We're excited to have you. We let you on the main feed today. Yeah, this is really cool. It's not going to be very cool editing all the mistakes that I make later. Well, it will be a fun challenge for you to edit yourself. Edit that will be and make myself sound coherent. That's something Tina and I don't have to do because we have you. And Renee gets the distinct pleasure of watching us mash our faces together and speak over the same mic. Yeah. Well, we were supposed yes. to figure out a dual mic setup, but we you know, just moved. We're I don't make even it know. Work. And I don't even know where the other mic is. I saw it in a box somewhere, yeah. but who knows yeah. where. Well, you know what's interesting? And we planned this episode. If do you do you two remember back in February? We'd been wanting to bring John on, and then we decided. We all had so much to say about banned books mm-hmm. that we put this on the calendar. It seems like so long ago, and here we are. I know, and I remember thinking, and John's like, with us. It is banned book week. I was like, September? Can we wait yeah, until then? September? But- <laughs> Who knows what's going I on know. in September? I mean, we are in a whole new house. We're literally at a new house. We did not have that idea at the time. <laughs> in February. No, no. we did no. not. No. All right. Well, no. we will kick things off as we always do with our loving lately, and we will Ask our guests to go first. Jonathan, do you have a loving lately for us? I do have a loving lately. Uh, You know my loving lately. It's sitting in our bathroom. It is the (laughs) nano steamer from Pure Daily Care. And basically, this thing is exactly what it says. It's a, I don't know, kind of like a vase-looking object that you pour water into a little tube in the back of, and it turns, it's just a little face steamer. So steam comes out this little wide mouth at the front of it, And it's got like a little opening so you can open the top, like the skinny part of a vase, and you can put like little towels in there so that they get warmed. So, you know, if you're doing some skincare or if you're just, you know, going to do a little face steaming, you feel like your face is so caked up of nonsense that you need the power of steam to get it (laughs) up. This thing is really good for it. So I'm glad that we actually have space in our bathroom countertop to have it live there instead of like, I think we were, we, I don't know. I think it lived under the cabinet before, but I've been like using it a lot more now because there's actually space for it. So I just 
you know, plug it in, pop it on. It warms up in a couple of seconds. And it's like the feeling of if you just open your dishwasher, that like kind of steam that oh, comes yeah. in your face. So it could either just be refreshing or it could be part of your routine. But I love this little thing. And it's the Nano Face Steamer from Pure Daily Care. Now, I'm not like, I don't know, I'm not beholden to this particular brand. It's just steam coming at your face. So if you find like a, you know what I mean? Like a, a better little, <laughs> this like this particular face steamer, it's the only one I've ever had, but it works on its own. Now, know? do you use this at the beginning of your skincare routine at the end or yeah, when do you use it? Definitely the beginning, definitely mm-hmm. the beginning. And I feel like I find myself using it mm-hmm. on days where like, it can't be too hot, right? Or you can't have to go right now or else like. Right, it's yeah. a nighttime product. Yeah, it's going to sl- like, you oh, know, yeah. if you tried to do, I'm sure if you tried to put makeup on, like you would just be too hot. So it would slide. It would right just off. slide right <laughs> off. So no, this is more of like I would say like this is if you're gonna do like a night routine, something to relax, or or if you're in the morning but you got plenty of time, like mm-hmm. you have plenty of time to like you know let your let your pores close up and stuff like that. <laughs> let your pores breathe. Yeah, right. Yeah, but if you gotta go and you have like 15 minutes, you're gonna be. I mean, it's gonna be like you we're just not took steaming. a shower. Yeah, yeah we're not no. steaming our face no, with, no. with that this time is, crunch. This is like this is lavish. This is you're really leaning into your routine. <laughs> this is not your quick 15 minute routine. Yes, and I can co-sign. This is I love excellent. It. I like it a lot and it's also very quiet, which is nice. It's not like one of the super loud ones. It's just yeah. kind of ooh, it, yeah, it's nice. Don't it makes like you feel a, fancy. Yeah, don't think like a tea kettle. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, it's nice and quiet. So my loving lately is something I've wanted for such a long time because I was seeing the folks on TikTok do it. And I thought, God, that looks like such a good idea. So my loving lately is my combination walking treadmill and standing desk. And we will link both. I don't, they have long names, so I won't say it, but we will definitely link it. And I will say I did a fair amount of research before purchasing and I think I picked well. So my day job is hybrid and meaning I work from home a lot. I spend a lot of time sitting and working out of my home office. (laughs) And I found that I was not moving a lot on the days when I was working from home. I have a personality where I hate sitting still. I hate sitting all day. And it actually helps me to focus to have this treadmill under my desk. So what I do is I put the desk all the way up. It goes all the way up to 46 inches. And then my treadmill is super flat and very light and small. And it fits under the desk well. So This is a walking treadmill. It doesn't go up any higher than five miles an hour. I use it at about two. And I find that I could just type. It sounds like it sounds like you would not be coordinated enough to do it, but I it's really nice. And what I like is they're both remote controlled. So the desk is electric. There's just a little button next to me and it'll go up and down as needed. And the treadmill has a remote control. So you're not like fiddling, bending down, fiddling with it. So you could just point at it. It does shut off after 40 minutes, but I actually don't mind that because I find I'm only able to walk for 40 minutes at a time anyway before somebody needs something. I need to, whatever, transition. So that has not been a problem. It looks sleek. I really like the look of this desk. It's white. And I think they had a couple other colors as well. I also like that it doesn't get super dirty. Like if you, it's easy to clean. Sometimes things get scuffed or scraped and it doesn't look like this will. John set it up and I don't think it took very long, right? How long did it take you? It's mostly set up. 
you're really just putting the large pieces together. The desk, that is. Yep. Yeah, the treadmill, literally, I took it out of the box. Yeah, and the treadmill's just that was already. super easy. So I am really happy I invested in it. If you were thinking about doing it, if there's other folks that work from home and think, gosh, I would love to move more, I recommend it. Let me know. I want to like talk to you guys about this. <laughs> so my loving lately was my walking treadmill and standing desk. That is a great idea. And you can definitely increase your chances of getting your steps, in, your daily yes. goal of steps in. The other day, I, yeah. I only walked on it twice while Lily was at school and in the morning before she woke up and I was at 6,000 steps before noon. Oh, you couldn't tell me nothing. Awesome. I thought I was so cool. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Every day, I'm like, God, <laughs> I love it so much. It's really cool too. Yeah, I really wish maybe we should stand up for this episode. We'll have some standing energy. No, I just, <laughs> yeah. just stand right. Oh, up. I don't know if you want to edit. You want to edit that? I was done. just going to say, you know, I can't stand still. I'm going to be yeah, that's stomping true. all you're around, just jumping jacks and stuff. But yeah, I think it's very variable for like even if you're a tall person. Yeah, because yeah, I was able to use it mm-hmm. just fine with the treadmill. So the treadmill probably pops you off the ground about five more inches. And I believe I had shoes on. Yeah. And I was still able to, like, use my computer while sitting there walking. And then, like, yeah, the coordination part of it, like, you don't think about it. Yeah. You can walk. You know where your feet are. (laughs) It is very narrow, though. So keep that in mind. But anyway, this has been really fun. Okay. All right. What do you have for us? All right, you two. I'm obsessed with my loving lately. It's usually you who are bringing a TV series. But today... I'm obsessed. I am bringing you The Patient, starring Steve Carell on Hulu. Have you heard of this show? No, but I know Steve Carell in his later days has become a very handsome man. Oh, yes, for sure. He's always been a favorite actor of mine. I mean, I've seen most of his movies, I bet. Tina. Wait, Renee, were you an Office fan? <gasps> that's the that's the Steve Carell I have not seen. Oh, I've wow. I've not really? seen The Office. I've seen his movie, like most of the movies he's been in, but not The Office. Wow. I know. I need to watch The yeah, Office. Yeah, I went through a phase I know. where I would watch The Office all the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think I must have just watched it so much now that I don't find myself watching it anymore. But yeah, if you have not seen that Steve I know. Perot, you're a fan of Steve I Perot. need to. Yeah he, yeah, he really is the star of that show. Yeah. I need to. I do love him. I'll add it to my TV list. I'm surprised I got to this, but it's because there's only a few episodes out. My son, this is the fun thing about having adult children. (laughs) My older son knows what I like and knows I have a weird fascination with serial killers. And he said, have you watched the show? And I said, no. So anyway, gave it a try, binged all three episodes. Now there's four. This is about, okay, Steve Carell's character is a therapist. And he, in very first episode, is taken prisoner by one of his patients, Sam. And <laughs> Sam is, oh my gosh, Sam is quirky and he's odd. He is the character you cannot stop watching and listening to. And turns out he, he has so much respect for Steve Carell's character that he needs him chained to a bed because he needs him to help him stop his urges to kill again. Oh, that's a good setup. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's so good. That's all you need to know. The acting is phenomenal. I don't actually have, I don't have the name in front of me um, as to who's playing Sam, but wow. And 
there are surprises. I can't, I don't know if it was episode two, maybe. The twist that happened in that episode, I was like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I highly recommend it. I cannot wait. Every Tuesday, new episodes are dropping. That's The Patient starring Steve Carell on Hulu. That is awesome. I, You know what, Tina? I'm making this declaration right now on live in front of our millions of listeners. <laughs> we are going to watch some TV shows this fall. Oh, that would be my We're dream come true. Up. Oh. We're going to... Because we have TVs everywhere. So and like maybe by the we way, can... we don't all they ever play is Peppa Pig. Peppa, that's it. That's it. And I'm like, you gotta stop this. Peppa's on every so, station. It's either every Peppa channel. Pig or it's football. And it's like <laughs> we gotta... we're not watching anything else. No, we're doing it. All right, you heard it here first, folks. All right. Well, let's switch into books. Now, Jonathan, do you want to tell us about your latest read? Yeah. All right. So preparing for this episode. I have books that I'm supposed to be reading for the podcast, and I got completely derailed, like I always do, by a book. So I'm, I'm at football practice. One of our coaches works at the other place I work, which is the Forest Reserve. Now, there's a secret of the Forest Reserve. It's not that much of a secret, but a lot of people don't know that there's nuclear equipment buried underneath one of the, uh, one of the woods. So there's this place, Redgate Woods where they have nuclear material from the University of Chicago that is buried there. Well, we were talking about it, and there's actually another site called Site-M that has spent nuclear fuel buried there also. Now, that is not marked, I don't believe, or maybe the marking is really understated, but people don't ever go to see Site-M. So we got to talking about it. And one of our other coaches, who's also a biologist, I don't know why this is such a thing at Tilly Park. So we love football and we love biology. We were talking about the place in Ottawa, Illinois, where, you know, a group of women were making clocks and watches that glow in the dark. And so, you know, one of the teachers was saying, you know, there's a book called The Radium Girls that mm-hmm. pretty much details that story, and it's by the author Kate Moore. And I'm like, oh, I've heard this name before. Tina brought one of Kate's books to the podcast, and it was The Woman They Could Not Silence. And that was the book about, you know, the woman who was put into the asylum by her husband, and basically she had no rights, mm-hmm. she had to get out. So this same author wrote this book about these women who worked at this factory in Ottawa, Illinois, that made those watches and clocks that glue in the dark and basically their fight for justice when obviously things started going extremely wrong because they were unprotected dealing with radioactive material. So these teenage girls who, you know, at the time that factory represented opportunity, money, freedom for them, you know, it became their ultimate undoing. So literally as their bodies are falling apart, they're fighting for justice. Falling apart to the point where their jaws are coming apart, right? I mean, it's pretty graphic, some of the things that have happened to them. And so, yeah, my personal connection to this story just literally derailed my entire reading. And I started reading. Now, I'm probably about 60% through the book, and it's just so good. It's a, you know, it's a narrative, nonfiction. These places actually exist. You can read about their fight for justice. And this kind of thing is still going on where you have large companies that employ people and the dangers of their jobs are not readily apparent. And when they become apparent, the companies try their hardest 
to not compensate these people for the things that are happening to them. And basically, I think it's called Radium Dial was the company. Basically, just we're trying to wait for these women to die. Kate Moore just writes a really good book. It's a good tandem, I think, with her her other book, because I read the synopsis for that book, and I really just want to read both of these books now. She did such a good job of giving these women a voice. It reminds me a lot of Say Nothing oh. by Patrick Radden Keefe, where you're just in the story, and although these are real people and real events, he does a good job of weaving it into a narrative that you know, makes it feel like a story and not like you're reading a Wikipedia article. So Mm -hmm. that is The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore. That's great. Yeah, I heard about this on, I think My Favorite Murder had an episode on this crime, you know, basically what happened to the women. So I've not read the book, but I Mm. knew the story. Now I'm like, oh, well, add it to the list. So everyone who's interested in that book can add it to their nonfiction November book list. Yes. That's coming up. That is a good point. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let me just quickly go over my latest read because unfortunately it is a book I do not recommend. Mm-hmm. I don't always bring them to the show, but I did share it on my September books on the radar. And I thought, let me follow up in case someone heard me mention mm-hmm. it and was curious. This book is The Most Likely Club by Alyssa Friedland. And this book's the one about a group of friends who make a pact to finally achieve their high school superlatives. So you've got four friends, Melissa, Priya, Tara, and Suki. And after their 25-year high school reunion, they agree to achieve what they were voted in high school. One was most likely to win the White House, most likely to cure cancer, most likely to open a Michelin-starred restaurant, and most likely to join the Forbes 400. And I liked the initial setup of this. I listened to it. And the first few chapters, when they were in high school, they were good. I was interested. It was nice because it was in the, I think, you know, late 90s, and I was enjoying some of the nostalgia. They talked about things like koosh balls and time capsules, and I was enjoying that piece. And I thought it was going to be a fun and easy read until we got to the meat of the story where I found these women to be super flat. And they were in their early 40s. You would have thought these women were like toward the end of their life, the way that some, like the things that they understood, didn't understand. They're like four years older than me. And I'm like, why do I feel so much younger than you sound on the page? And for example, Melissa was the one who was most likely to win the White House. She becomes obsessed with losing weight, literally has a very clear eating disorder. And it's done so cavalierly. Oh, I'm just eating celery sticks. One friend would be like, you're just skin and bones. Have the croissant. It was very irritating because it was just kind of like, almost funny. Like, oh, she's got this eating disorder. So crazy. I'm like, what? And I kept waiting for it to be given some actual heft and it never came. One of the friends was missing for literally over the half of the book for no real reason. Also, I don't think she handled the bisexual character very well. And I can't say why, but there was one thing that her character did that just pissed me off, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. The only redeemable character for me was Priya, who was a doctor, and she had three kids, and she was trying to juggle her family, her culture, her responsibilities, her children. But even by the end, she got overdone to the point where I'm like, all right, now you're a caricature. In the very last chapter or so, one of the characters has a cancer scare. And I thought the author was so careless with the mention of it. And then a couple pages later, oh, it's quickly resolved. She's fine. No worries. And it was never mentioned again. And I've heard from readers who have had cancer themselves who found it super distasteful and frankly triggering. So overall, I can't say that I would recommend this book. I thought it had a nice premise, but fizzled by the end. 
This was The Most Likely Club by Alyssa Friedland. Anyway, sorry to be a bummer. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like that's a, a topic dump almost. Like the author tries to throw things in without like they, substance or follow up. Yeah, it felt like they tried to cover a lot. No, they gave her this cancer scare because she was so very unlikable. And she had this boyfriend who was this millionaire and this and that. And like, she just kept talking about how short he was, how he wasn't that cool in high school, how he wasn't that interesting. And like this character was so unlikable. I think they did that to basically redeem her <laughs> in a certain way. Okay. How long? Okay, is gotcha. This book? Normal paid 350, probably. Okay. So yeah, I think it's it's also kind of difficult to tell several different stories of several people in yeah. 300 pages. Maybe that's why Su- Suki was missing for most of the book. Because <laughs> she was just like, oh, where's Suki? Oh, she's too rich to be here. And like, I really thought they were going to go somewhere with that. And it, it just didn't. Anyway, uh, apologies if you okay. liked this book. Maybe I'm off base, but I really... Here's what I will say. I, I kept reading. I finished it. So, you know, there's yeah, that. what made you keep Well, reading? I mean, you know, not everyone has the same opinion. That's why we... That's why we share ours. You know, it's a book review. Well, I kept reading because I I was curious to see, okay, they have these superlatives. And these superlatives are like cure cancer, become the president. Like, these are huge things. So I guess I was curious Mm -hmm. how the author was going to resolve that. And Mm -hmm. if she would, she sort of did. Yeah, they sort of got resolved. All right. So what I am going to share with you is Daisy Darker by Alice Feeney. Now, I loved his and hers which I read, listened to a couple summers ago. This is also narrated by Stephanie Racine. She's amazing, phenomenal audiobook narrator. And I would give her five stars. I would not give the book five stars. So here is what it's about in a nutshell. You have a family, the darker family, and after years of avoiding each other, they are all going to get together for Nana's 80th birthday party And they are going to travel to Nana's very old gothic house on a tiny tidal island. So perfect setting. And once back together for one last time, things are going to happen. So on this island, when the tide comes in, they're all going to be cut off from leaving from everything else for eight hours. So the family all arrives And of course, all of them have secrets. And at the stroke of midnight, a storm comes in and someone is found dead. And an hour later, the next family member follows. So this is a quote unquote wink because someone, uh, I think Goodreads said that too. And then there were none Mm. by Agatha Christie. Okay. So, and, and obviously it's a murder mystery because everyone's family or are they and who's killing off? The family. I have not read, and then there were none. So I thought, I actually thought, oh, that's great because I have nothing to compare this type of story to. And I really, really enjoyed probably the first 40% for sure. I thought it was fun, entertaining. I love the setting. I think this is actually a perfect book for fall. This is a winner. It, it's already a winner with a lot of readers. And I can see why. But for me, there was a certain point where everybody, like the next person who died and then the next person who died and then and then the time alternation between going back in time and, and getting the backstory for each of the family members and then jumping back, it started to feel a little repetitive. And 
I started to roll my eyes. And when I start to roll my eyes, I don't, it's, I don't feel, I'm just, it takes you for out me, I know I'm, I know this, the story is losing me when I start to feel like that. So by the end, I was underwhelmed and I probably did have really high expectations because I, I loved his and hers so much, but this one just did not work for me overall. So that's Daisy Darker by Alice Feeney. All right. Well, good job. I was curious about that one. I, I like Alice Feeney. I loved her debut and everything after that has been not for me. His and hers was good. Yeah. Did you like, I thought I didn't you liked love it. That. It was good. It wasn't my all-time favorite. It was fine. It was good. There are two I really disliked. <laughs> so it's like, I've been all over the map with her. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, it's been a hit for many, many people. So I'm just one opinion, but I'm glad I read it and tried it because I've been holding off for the fall. Yeah. So let's get into book talk. And we wanted to pick this topic because it is Banned Books Week. When this episode airs, Banned Books Week is September 18th through 24th this year. And what it does is it celebrates the freedom to read and spotlights current and historical attempts to censor books in libraries and schools. This has actually been around since the early 80s, and the event brings together the entire book community, librarians, booksellers, publishers, everybody, us influencers, in shared support of the freedom to seek and express ideas, even those that some consider to be unorthodox or unpopular. What I thought was fascinating when I was doing some of the research for this was that we are in a time with an unprecedented number of attempts to ban books. And the ALA, mm -hmm. the American Librarian Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, tracked 729 challenges to library, school, and university materials in 2021, which resulted in more than 1,500 individual book challenges or removals. And unsurprisingly, most targeted books were about or by Black or LGBTQIA persons. I don't know why I was surprised by this statistic, but I just was surprised that because in 2021, only 150, well, only, but 156 challenges were made versus 729 this year. And I was thinking maybe 2020 people were busy with COVID and other things they couldn't, <laughs> you know, challenge. So I also looked at 2019 where you had 377. So from 2019, 377 to this last year is 729. I mean, that is a significant increase. I do think that there's been a paradigm shift. Tina and I were talking about this as we were kind of reading and doing research for this episode. If you look on the ALA's website, you can see why certain books are challenged. And there's no two ways around the fact that you hit a certain point and most books are being banned due to LGBTQIA content. There's not much of a reason given besides that. I was surprised to learn that banned books, it's its not been tracked or it hasn't been a thing. It started in 1960, and I would have guessed it would have started way earlier. I don't know why, but that I, surprised me. Well, I mean, yeah, from the research I was doing, basically, when there is a time of social progress and change, people like to control the narrative. Mm. And one of the ways that people use to control narrative is access to information. I think that's a tale pretty much as old as time. And I do think that, I mean, I would say since I've been out of college, which was in 2013, 2012, 2013, there has been some extraordinary change in access to rights for 
those who are LGBTQIA. And I think that that has been met with a number of different challenges. I think this is just one of those challenges, and the numbers speak for themselves. You can look on the ALA's website and see the top 10 most challenged books by year. Mm -hmm. And like I said, there is definitely, I would say maybe 2016 or maybe it's 2015, where you see a great majority of those books are challenged due to content that is LGBTQIA. And I just don't, like, that's not a reason to, I don't know, that's not a reason to ban a book. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say when we picked this topic, I really, truly did not know the ins and outs of like, what is, what's involved in book banning? What are we talking about? Are we only, I just really didn't know. So I really enjoyed, I guess is a weird word, but learning about everything I needed, like I should have known all of this and I didn't. So I'm glad I do now. I will, I'll go ahead and give the difference between banned and challenge books, because that was one of my main questions when I started deciding which books to pick for this episode. What is the difference between, what are we talking about banned and some were talking about challenge and what is the difference? So a challenge is an attempt to remove or restrict materials based upon the objections of a person or a group. So a book can be challenged often by parents, that that seems to be who's really leading these challenges. Now, if a book is banned, then it is removed. It's removed from the school library. It's removed from curriculums, and it's gone. You cannot the the students cannot access or anyone cannot access that book at that location. Challenged books, a lot of times, they're temporarily removed, but then they will be. Put back on the shelves. And I'm actually bringing one of those books today as one of mine. Now, how far does this ban or challenge go? Is this like, I'm going to go to my local school district, I'm going to challenge to ban a book. You know, how far does that stretch? Or are these all individual cases? Well, I don't know. From what I found, it's often a school district. Mm -hmm. So it could be a, right, a potential a particular school district and just a few of the states, because I know, like I said, I'm bringing one now that was challenged in, first in Illinois, then in Ohio, and the Texas challenges a lot. There's a lot from Texas, but I don't think, I think every state for the most part has had some books being challenged and books that are banned. I think the way the way it starts is parents writing letters to the school board and or the superintendent. And depending on their process, a lot of times the superintendent will just go ahead and remove the book temporarily, even if it's challenged, without without going through any sort of voting process. Yeah, Almost that, like that's the part that bothered me the most. Yeah, exactly. They don't want to argue, you know, so they'll just do that versus going through the steps that maybe they should. One of the books that I'm bringing today, there was an article about the actual process by which this book became banned. From what I can tell, basically someone handpicked a contextless passage, brought this to a school superintendent, and did not actually read the book. So this contextless passage was used as a catalyst to ban the entire book. And I feel like mm -hmm. that's what's happening in general. 
is that you have a mm-hmm. lot of people who aren't actually reading these books. They're getting snippets and passages from screaming parents at board meetings. And rather than go through some sort of process that is actually supposed to be used when a book is challenged or banned, these are basically just parents making an argument and superintendent placating that argument. And then those books just being... Mm-hmm. But then I think about, okay, well, what does that say to the kids to where that, okay, I was, I see myself in that book and now it's banned. Am I banned? Am I not welcome here? Like, that's the message that I think is sending. And I think that's much more damaging than a kid who may or may not pick up a book that they may or may not even be interested in and see something that men- that mentions, like, same-sex marriage. Yeah, because there is the, I'm trying to ban a book to protect my child from something I think they shouldn't be, you know, this kid should not be consuming this kind of material. I don't think that that's all banned books, though, is like, you know, my I'm a parent and I want to protect the explicit nature of this book, what I believe is the explicit nature of this book from my kids. I think that when you ban a book, though, you're taking that book out of everybody's hands. And it's not just your kid. You can make the decision Mm -hmm. to tell your kid not to read a certain book or to read this book later. You can enforce rules in your house. I think bringing something to the school board to take a book out of the school for everyone, that book would have to rise to a level that I don't like, at least as far as I have been reading, these books don't rise to that level. Mm-hmm. You know, where you say, this book is not a problem for me. This book is a problem for society. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was so mm-hmm. interesting because they, they did list the topics that typically the biggest complaints usually center on the following issues. Homosexuality, witchcraft, sex, profanity, alcohol use, violence, and anti-God slash religion. And my thing, I kept thinking about this as we were planning. I'm like, does banning books work? Because, like, the internet exists. Kids have TikTok. Kids have mm-hmm. social media. They have each other. Like, I just don't understand why a or how restricting access to a book that was well thought out, edited, public, you know, all of these things, right. how that's going to help. I would agree because that was the question at the top of my mind, which was the if kids, which for the most part, you know, have access to the internet, social media, the new, the nightly news, the date, you know, news is a 24, news is on 24 seven. I mean, I understand that elementary aged kids may not have access to social media or maybe the news or even the internet. A lot do, for sure. And I mean, we know that a lot of elementary age kids often have access to this. So if they have access, how is taking away books, certain books, going to keep them from consuming that content? I don't think it is. I think what it's going to happen is that if the author's intention is to teach a kid some sort of lesson, that lesson is still going to be learned. It's just how is that lesson going to be learned? Mm-hmm. If you're a parent trying to protect your kid from certain content, it's too late. They know it. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they know it. Don't you exist in right. the world? They know it already. It's even worse than when you were a kid. And it's going to be even worse when our kids have kids. Like, they know it. They know all of it. Like, you knew all of it. What, like, you don't remember being a kid? 
You know all of it. What you lack is context. And I think that books provide context. Yes. And they provide an opportunity for discussion and an opportunity for people Mm -hmm. to read a shared experience and then have discussion about it. So I think that's the the thing that we're losing here. Do you guys think that some books should be banned? Is there a reasoning for banning books? Can you think of any books that should be banned? We don't have to mention any specific books, but do you think there are books that rise to the level of this book is so damaging, it's a problem for society? Which I think that's, if I'm answering my own question, is I think if a book rises to the level of being bad for society, I do think that it should like it should be banned or at least heavily restricted. That's kind of the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded room. Exactly. Because it's now endangering a a lot of groups of people. Right. So if a book encourage it's like any sort of freedom of speech thing. But like if a book is encouraging hate speech, if a book is rallying people against a a certain group of people, uh, that, you know, that stuff is so damaging that I think that those books should be banned and those books should be yeah like we should we certainly shouldn't be promoting that. I don't know. Can you think of any other reasons books should be No, I totally agree with that. And I'm my initial thought is I would have a feeling that those types of books would not make it onto most like I don't know what my percentage would be. I'm just going to say let's just say 95% of school curriculums because the school librarians and the educators of the schools, that's their job, right? Is Part of their job is to make the school curriculum, the librarians order the books. I'm thinking most likely those that type of book, which I, I agree with you should be banned, probably is not going to make it onto a reading list That's for... That's interesting that you say school curriculum because I, I do think that there's a difference between a book that... I mean, because remember when they're banning these books, these books aren't necessarily part of your school's curriculum, right? Your book, your school library, uh, at least in my experience, has several books that are not part of the yeah, school's you're right. curriculum, mm-hmm. right? So these books are mm-hmm. just existing in the library and there are people coming and saying... That book shouldn't even be in the library. Your kids shouldn't even have the option to read, right? I think that there's an argument to be made about curated lists that you read your freshman, sophomore, junior year of high school, right? There's That is actually a separate argument entirely of what books should be on and off of those lists. I mean, these books are banned in general. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not even in the library. But what they're missing when they ban or when parents ban these books is that the librarians are the subject matter experts in in reading. Like, they are the ones Mm -hmm. that, like Renee was saying, they are the ones that order the books for the library and decide what is displayed and, like, what displays go up. And they are the subject matter experts. They are the ones literally trained in library science who say, okay, this book has been deemed appropriate for this age group. Mm -hmm. So I just don't know what a parent coming into it is going to, what sort of expertise they're going to have that's going to supersede what the librarian has been trained on. And it also seems like it's not the librarians or teachers that are pulling books and banning them, right? It becomes school administrators. Right, because they're feeling the pressure Right, they're the ones who are taking the pressure from the parents. Well, I guess guess it's confusing to me as to why parents cannot just choose to have their kids opt out or like if they check out a book from the library and they have a conversation at home with which is you need to return that book I don't you know that's not something you should that we want you reading versus yeah. 
like you mentioned, I think, John, versus I want the school to take that book away from any kids being able to yeah. read it. I I don't understand that. I don't know. If there's somebody who believes that their morality should be everyone's morality mm-hmm. or the way that they raise their kids should be the way, I, you know, I don't know if you can reason with a person like that who thinks that the things I do in my house should be done in everyone's house. There's a word that, you know, you see in some of these banned books, the reasoning is given like it doesn't fit our community morality or something Mm. like that. There's something, you know, along the lines of this doesn't fit our community's moralities. And I'm like, that that's nothing. (laughs) You don't control what's happening Mm -hmm. in other people's houses. If you go to like a private school, I think your argument is stronger a school based around a certain level of values. But as far as I know, public schools have the values of the country, which is a freedom of expression and freedom of speech Mm -hmm. and things like that. The freedom of access to information. You're not allowed to tell people... You know, yeah. you can't have this information. Yeah. And it, there has been mm-hmm. cases that go all the way to the Supreme Court. I was really curious about it. There's something called the PICO decision. And this is a case where somebody challenged a decision and brought it all the way to the Supreme Court under the guise of the violation of the First Amendment. So if you're curious about it, it's actually quite complicated. And the results were interesting. But it does. The article I'm looking at, I can share it in our in our show notes, talks about how the way that the Supreme Court judges voted and, and what that looks like. Banning books to me is about censorship and it's about not wanting to take responsibility and and like you had said, oh, you know, we don't want you to read this at this point, you know, return this book or whatever, or reading it with your kid and maybe having some discussion about things that take place in the book. Cause guess what? These things happen and you can't always protect oh, your kids from it. Yeah. Do you remember mm-hmm. one book that we were looking at said like books should not make tough conversations or something like give kids tough conversations. Yeah. One of the books, um, yeah, was challenged because it would lead to tough conversations or something to that effect. And And it's like, like, I mean, that's what reading is. Isn't that, that's kind of the point. What are you talking about? (laughs) This is maniacal. I had to like, I had to, when we were reading it, I had to stop and like make sure like is this a pop up ad? Like, <laughs> what, am real? I on like Snopes or <laughs> E Bombs World? Like, no, it's on the ALA. Well, and someone really actually gave that reasoning is books shouldn't create these kind of kind of conversations for children, which is just. Well, it's under the guise of safety. You want to keep your kids safe, so you don't want to expose them to yes. X, Y, and Z. Where it's like. Okay, but these things, whether or not you want them to read this book, it exists and yeah. it could happen. And and, and again, what's the your harm kids in discussion? Already know. Like, I well, know I, if you have like little kids, mm-hmm. yeah. if you have little kids, there's a like <laughs> something right. to be said for the pace at which you expose your kids to certain things. Well, and that's right. why there's middle grade age, age appropriateness. Right. Yeah. But again, these are right. librarians and teachers are curating these lists for them and they right. do know this right. stuff already. Mm-hmm. So there's already a system by mm-hmm. which this is going and it's almost like parents exactly. because there are some parents cuz I don't, like I'm not demonizing all parents, right? This is a very rare person that's doing this. But like there are some parents who are ignorant to the process so they think there is no process. Mm-hmm. But like there are people who go to school for this. And this is what they do with mm-hmm. their life, which is decide the sort of things that kids should be reading. And right. And that's, again, mm-hmm. their expertise. Like, they're yeah. the ones like, that that's are, what they are trained in this. Right. right. I think kids I think kids of all ages should have the ability to walk into their 
school library and pick out a book that they want to read. I don't think it, I personally don't think it should be anyone else's decision other than maybe their their own parents. I certainly didn't tell my kids they couldn't read anything in particular. I mean, both of my boys are grown now. There was nothing that I mean, I was thrilled if they brought a book home. <laughs> they were, they were like, read whatever you want. <laughs> they were often reluctant readers. Do you, either of mm-hmm. you, have an experience of reading a book as a kid that you thought maybe now in retrospect you weren't ready for? Oh, for sure. I don't, but I tell us about yours. But I got my, yeah, I mean, it, I remember. Gosh, I don't know. I read a lot, though. I read. I mean, I, I I wanted to read scary books. Probably some of the scary books, maybe might have been for you know older kids. But yeah, yeah, I I, I still read it. It wasn't ever questioned that I couldn't read anything. Often I got those from the public library. Yeah, you know. So that was more of a, a me picking out what a you know what I wanted to read. Did you have an experience where you public. were like, "Damn, I wish I wouldn't have read that." <laughs> Oh, no, I didn't have that experience. Got it. Okay, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was a voracious reader, too, and I definitely read above my age grade. But we, you know, it was Babysitter's Club, Goosebumps, uh, R.L. Stein, like that sort of, that's where my lane was. But I know a lot of a lot of people read um, Flowers in the Attic. That was a really big one. Oh, I read that. Did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I read that. Oh, yes. I don't remember. I, I was young. I can't yeah. even remember how old I was, but I was young, and that was, yeah. That I read Stephen, I read... Pet Cemetery when I was 15. Hmm. That's an adult book, technically. I Yeah, I was not an adult reading that. And that was the scariest book I'd ever read in my life at that Still, time. that's one of my scariest books to this day. I read this book, I think I was 14 or 15. So I was able to understand and read this book. It was called My Bloody Life by Raimundo Sanchez. And it was about hmm. this kid, I believe he's a Chicago area kid, who was a gang member. And mm. boy, that book was graphic. It was explicit, but it was real. Like I knew real people who went through stuff like this. Like there were actual like this stuff did actually happen. And I do remember, I mean that book certainly wasn't banned or challenged or anything at the time. It was available in our in our library. It was really interesting. A lot of people read it, I think because we were in the Chicagoland area and we know of certain street gangs and kind of the stuff that they went through. But Mm -hmm. this book definitely detailed the, I mean, I would recommend it to people now just to like the, the kind of life that some of these people live. Yeah. Um, And it's a, it's interesting because it's like an own, it's an own voices book in a sense. Like this person is or was a gang member and is writing about it. Right. Exactly. But yeah, so I do remember that was probably the most graphic book I read at a young age. I don't know if I had any actual problems reading or like understanding mm-hmm. the context of it. Like even at the time, it was shocking. Mm-hmm. It would still be shocking mm-hmm. if you read it as an adult. I do want to mention the cool thing that Bro- Brooklyn Public Libraries is doing. Oh yeah, and they and, and what I love about this is that Books Unbanned is a team-led initiative from BPL. And their goal is to push back against the attempts to remove reading materials from schools and libraries in the U.S. And they give people ages 13 to 21 a library card 
and gives them access to the Brooklyn Public Library's digital catalog, regardless of location, with the goal of reaching marginalized teens who frequently find themselves the target or you know, of, of the books that are being banned. So I, I thought that was super cool. Mm-hmm. I knew about it. I didn't re- realize it was teen-led. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. We can link to that, too. I would love to share this because, and I'll link to this article also, because we're hearing our opinions. So I loved that I had come across this article, what students are saying about banning books from school libraries, and they were interviewed directly. And I want to read this quick. Because I think this is this highlights so much of what we're saying. One student said, while it's reasonable to be concerned about the material your children are reading, as some material might not be age appropriate, there is almost never, honestly, never at all, justification for banning a book. When you look at novels like Mouse that was recently banned in a Tennessee school district for nudity and cursing, it becomes increasingly obvious that we are trying to erase no history, no matter your opinion or concerns, should be hidden or erased, especially such horrible events like the Holocaust. If we don't learn history, we can't learn from it. And that is most essential key to humanity, end quote. It's amazing. I lo- I thought that was really, that was really, one of the kids that wrote exactly that. what we're talking about. That was, a, yes, that was a quote fr- from this article where they interviewed students and I thought that was so thoughtful and exactly what we're saying. There's a lot in that article from students and students, they have their own thoughts about this too. Yeah. And I love that. I, I know this week the book community really is going to come together. I've seen already a ton of articles mm-hmm. from Book Riot and just other outlets that are really, you know, kind of highlighting individual cases. So I'm glad that we were able to put our thoughts to the people. Let's get into the books that we did read for our banned books episode. Each of us read two banned books. Well, we've read many in our lives, but we're bringing two banned (laughs) books that we've recently read. We'll get started with Jonathan. Okay. My first book is Looking for Alaska by John Green. I did this book on audio, and it's narrated by Will Wheaton. I don't know. I mean, the audio was really, it was good. So maybe that's why I didn't know that Will Wheaton was narrating at first. And I don't know Will Wheaton's voice well enough to have recognized that. But it was a really good, like, he did a great job narrating it. Okay. So Looking for Alaska is a story about invincible teenagers. Wait, let me say also that this book was banned for offensive language sexually explicit, and unsuited for age group, which I believe is YA, so unsuited for high schoolers. So high school, so unsuited for middle school, high school. Right. Okay. So I've read quite a bit of John Green books. I've read Will Grayson, Will Grayson, Paper Towns, An Abundance of Catherines, The Fall to Nostas. You know, he's an extremely good writer. He's, you know, he has this kind of literary way of writing that's approachable for people who aren't great with that. I mean, it's still a YA book. I think it reads like a YA book, but it's John Green. I mean, a lot of these have been adapted into either television series or movies. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why is he's just a tremendous writer. Okay, so like a lot of his books, a lot of like a lot of John Green books, it's a journey. We start off in the mind of Miles Halter, 
who is the uh, protagonist of the story. And he's at home in Florida with his parents, and they are having a going away party. He is going on a self-imposed pilgrimage to this boarding school called Culver Creek for what is ostensibly no reason. His father went to this school, Culver Creek, in Alabama, and I believe that his father went there for academic reasons. It seems like Miles is going there to get away from his hometown. All right, so he's he's leaving his hometown to go to Alabama to go to this school. All right, so you know a couple of things about Miles from the beginning of the story. He is very skinny, so he's a really skinny kid who can't seem to gain weight at all, and he memorizes the last words of famous historical figures. Um, so you spend a very little bit of time in this lead-up moment where he's having this going-away party, and the reason he gives for leaving, he uses the last words of Francois Rabelais. I think that's his name, Francois Rabelais. I go to seek a great perhaps. All right, so... <laughs> For most of the story, we're in this boarding school. So you get to this boarding school, and Miles meets his roommate, whose name is Chip, Chip Martin, but he goes by the nickname Colonel. And Colonel immediately gives Miles the nickname Pudge because he's very skinny. So they call him Pudge because that's what teenagers do. So he's introduced to the people that are going to make up the bulk of this story. So that is going to be Chip, uh, Takumi, who's another, uh, just another person who's at this boarding school, and then Alaska Young, who is this super intelligent, beautiful, but emotionally unstable girl. Now, quickly, Alaska becomes the fascination of Miles, and you're in his head as all he can think about is this girl that he just met, Alaska. Now, Alaska is what Tina has heard me rage about. And there, like, there's actually a Wikipedia article created for this. Uh, so I'm not the first person to coin this term. But Alaska is a manic pixie dream girl. Have you heard that term before? No. Manic pixie <laughs> dream girls pop up in lots of writing and are high energy, kind of... They only exist to basically pull some mopey protagonists out of their mopey behavior into the kind of a new light. They generally don't have goals or a story of their own, and they are pretty much a, you know, it's almost like they're a sidekick to the protagonist. Okay, so that was how I initially saw Alaska Young. As you're reading and you're going on their lives in this boarding school, you start to realize that John Green, the author, knows that Alaska is a manic pixie dream girl. And he knows that you know that. And then he's going to flip that on his head. Uh, and he, he knows you think she has no story, but she has a story. And you just don't know it. Okay. Okay. So that is kind of the evolution I went through while reading this book. We find out that despite Miles' fascination, Alaska is unattainable because she has a boyfriend who's not actually at this school. So they're going to do the thing that teenagers do where they're very close, and but they, you know, one, this person's in a relationship with someone who's not there. All right, so 
when Alaska learns about the fascination of last words that Miles has, she tells him Simone Bolivar's last words, which is really the, the jumping point of this story. And those words are, damn it, how will I ever get out of this labyrinth? And so they make a deal that if Miles ever figures out what the labyrinth is and how to get out, that she will find him a girlfriend. And so then you go through the story and, you know, there's the story kind of kicks off from there. So this story is organized as before and after. So, you know, chapter one is going to be like 118 days before. And then, you know, chapter five, 70 days before. So, you know, something is coming. And then there's an after, and something happens, and there's an after, and that after is going to take you the rest of the story. That's pretty much all I can say about that event is that it's organized. You know something is coming, and something's going to happen, and then the story pretty much takes off from there. I really liked this book. I, I mean, I like a lot of John Green books. He's extremely thoughtful. Characters that you don't think matter end up mattering you know, little snippets of information end up becoming large plot points. It's a John Green book. He does a really good job at this. And so <laughs> I, the things that frustrated me in the beginning kind of ultimately made sense. It's a really thought-provoking book. You know, these kids go through an evolution throughout this book. Yeah. Oh, this is a, a um, Hulu series. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's a Hulu oh my series. Gosh. Oh, I, never okay. I know. Me too. And I looked at the trailer and I was like, ah, oh, that's exactly what Pudge looks like. That's exactly what Colonel <laughs> looks like. To our <laughs> well, add it to our watching list. Yes, to yes. our cozy watching yeah. list. So I'm, oh, going cool. to, I'm definitely going to watch it because I really like this story. It's frustrating, but kids are frustrating. You know, they make mm-hmm. frustrating decisions. That's what that whole book is about, is about the, the things that happen to kids. And <laughs> Bad stuff does happen. And like this book is about navigating that. And I think that mm-hmm. it's a, yeah, if, as for a YA book, yeah, this would have been a great book to read in high school. Particularly, it would have been a great book to read and talk about in high school. So that was Looking for Alaska by John Green. You did a really good job okay. sharing about this. I read it many years ago, but I loved it. And I remember it being, I think it's, might be my favorite John Green, but I also really like The Fall in Our Stars. So he does, you're right. He has a very distinct way of writing YA. Okay. Yeah, you sold me. I'm going to give that a try. I've only read The Fall in Our Stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's really good. Yeah. And let me share my first book that I read for Band Books Week. It was Gender Queer by Maya Kobe. And the reasons that this book was banned or challenged, actually it was banned, challenged, and restricted for LGBTQIA plus content and because it was considered to have sexually explicit images. So this is a graphic memoir written by Maya Kobe, who uses EM ear pronouns. The author thought an autobiographic comic would be the very last thing in the world he would ever write because he took a long time to identify M's identity and even longer to feel comfortable sharing with other people. So that's what this entire book is about is how he came into their identity and to figure out what pronouns he wanted to use. And this book was so interesting because, again, it's a graphic memoir, but it comes across as being very intimate and almost cathartic. You can kind of tell in the process of writing this, the author was going through the times again. I think he had journals from when 
he was growing up and went back through and kind of looked to see what thoughts that he was having. And so it charts Ear's journey of self-identity, which includes the mortification and confusion of adolescent crushes, no matter what. It's mortifying regardless of Mm -hmm. your sexual identity. And so that I think the author captured really well. And with grappling about how to come out to family and society and bonding with friends over gay fan fiction and facing the trauma and fundamental violation of pap smears. He talks a lot about that. And this project started out as a way to explain to Air family about what it meant to be non-binary and asexual. But in addition to being a personal story, it's morphed now into a useful and touching guide on gender identity. I thought this book was super endearing. It's very, very honest about the things that everyone goes through when they're growing up, but also addresses what it means to not identify with the gender you were assigned to at birth. And it really reinforces the importance of pronouns. And I particularly appreciated this quote from him. It's more about not being female than being male, which I thought was really eye-opening for me. And I'm so glad this book exists and that other non-binary individuals can read it. And I think it might help other people feel seen. This one was a quick read. I downloaded it actually from Libby. And the reason I chose this, it is often the number one challenge or banned book. For the last three years, it's actually been number one, which I thought was really Mm eye-opening. Compared to some of the crap we read with serial killers and murders, this is like absolutely (laughs) tame in comparison. (laughs) So I highly recommend it. This book was Gender Queer by Maya Kobe. Yes, I saw that on all the lists. Okay, I am starting with a book I am so glad I read, and it is Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Saffron Foer. This book was first banned in Illinois in 2015. So banned, uh, taken off the shelves, and most recently in 2020 in an Ohio school, and it was banned for profanity and sexual situations, which I have thoughts on. And this was also perfect timing because as we are recording, we just passed the 21st anniversary of September 11th of the terrorist attacks and this this book that is a central topic of this book. So you have main character Oscar. He is nine years old. And in a vase, in a closet, a couple years after his father died in one of the World Trade Center towers, Oscar finds a package in, inside is a key. And the thing to know about Oscar is he is a very intelligent, possibly autistic kid, but it's never, it's never mentioned as a diagnosis. And he was also the first one home that day on 9-11, and his school was let out early. So he was the one that got the messages from his dad. His dad was in one of the towers where the plane hit below the floor that he was on. So his dad kept leaving messages, and Oscar was the one that got those messages before the tower fell. So Oscar decides, he finds this key, and he decides to take to go on a quest across New York's five boroughs and he's looking to find what that key could possibly open along the way he meets various strangers because he's also he has a name and he's looking for this this person who may potentially know what this key opens so he 
meets friends, relatives, and complete strangers along his journey to possibly, as he thinks, open 162 million locks around New York City (laughs) until he finds what this key that his dad had been keeping, what it could possibly open. So the story is narrated from Oscar's perspective, as well as people in his family, his mom, his grandma, they get a perspective, as well as a few other people that help Oscar along the way. Now, I would have never thought that I would have loved listening for an entire book of the perspective of a kid, because I often say, like, you know, kids are hard to, you know, follow on audio or whatever. And I did do probably half of this on audio, and I loved it. I love Oscar's perspective was my absolute favorite. His introspective way of looking at life, people, and the world, grief. It blew my mind. I lo- I just loved it. It was one of those books where you're listening. I'm listening and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that is that's actually exactly right. But I've never heard anyone put that into words. That's the type of writing that is in this book. There's three narrators. I highly recommend the audio, but I also really, truly, highly recommend to have this as an ebook if you can, because of the visual way that the author the graphics that he was able to do. And and it played really well on my Kindle. And I can't really explain anything else. He had some graphics with the towers and that were really interesting. This is a a very in-depth look at grief, depression, and also has a mystery element to it. So all of that combined, I really am glad I read this book. I didn't love all parts of it. The parts that I liked less were the parts when it went to another perspective other than Oscars, actually. Those were my least favorite parts. And that's really my only critique of this. I I recommend this book. I'm actually, I felt really disappointed that this has been banned because the sexual situations that they banned it for, they're all from a perspective of a nine-year-old trying to, and and he's just saying what he thinks in his nine-year-old brain certain sexual situations are. So it's all from the perspective of a nine-year-old. And to ban this from high school students, I, I don't understand it because I do think that this book could lead to so many important conversations. I wish my boys would have read this because, I mean, we have, especially my kids too, although they were one and three, so they were alive when 9-11 happened, they don't have any memory of it. So there are so many kids that don't know, you know, other than what they see in the media about like particular stories for 9-11. And this is such a good story about grappling with grief you know, the implications of 9-11 and and just the lingering effects over the years. So I guess I would recommend this. It's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Saffron Foer. That sounds so good. That is a book that I had been curious about. Gosh, mm-hmm. and you make such a good point that it's almost hard for me to imagine not knowing the significance of 9-11 because it was one of the, not the first, but one of the very first massive kind of world-changing events that my generation went through or observed. And so to your point, not having access to books like this, like how else would you be able to really kind of capture that 
understanding from right. a kid's perspective. Right. Or from or from the family. Yeah. Or just like understand why certain things are the way they are. Right. Like I think that it's such a monumental moment. Like there's I mean, it's a pivot point in yeah. society. Yeah, there's and a I before think, and there's an after. Yeah, there's a before and an after. And I think if you are someone who was born without the knowledge of what happened on that day, I think it's pretty difficult to understand why certain things are the way that they are. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's a weird Weird book to bed. Right. Well, it would create so many worthwhile conversations. Yeah. On to book two. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead with my second book, which is called Melissa by Alex Gino. The reason that Melissa was challenged and banned or restricted was for LGBTQIA Contact conflicting with a religious viewpoint and not reflecting the quote values of our community. So that's the one that we were talking about. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, this book was formerly called George and it's on the banned book list as George. Now, this oh. was released in 2015 and I believe that the name change happened in April of 2022. And this is because the author realized that they were intentionally calling Melissa by a name that she did not want to be called. So Melissa is a book about the transgender experience, at least as much as it can be articulated in the form of a middle grade book. So this book starts with the main character, George. At least that's what everyone else calls her. But George sees herself as Melissa. So she was assigned male at birth, but she sees herself as a girl. So she lives with her brother, Scott, and her mom. Her parents are separated, which is not really touched on until very, like the very end of the book. It's not really important to the story at all. It just seems like the author didn't want to include uh, another person <laughs> in the story. Okay, and she also has a best friend whose name is Kelly. What's important to say here is that all of these people care about Melissa. but. They are all misgendering Melissa because Melissa is not out yet. So, Melissa, you are in her head and you can see just how internally hostile she is to being a boy. Like, it's not just that she sees herself as a girl. It is that, like, the little things that bother her are everywhere, right? So, it's, it's even well-intentioned people are constantly misgendering her. So, you know, it's constantly an issue. It it doesn't really go away. And because you're in her head the entire story, you can see just how much, even when someone is trying to be comforting to her, they are misgendering her in a way that just, you know, makes her feel bad. Okay. So the story of Melissa revolves around a school play. It's a rendition of Charlotte's Web. The whole story is based around Melissa wanting to play the role of Charlotte, who is a female character, the female spider, and everyone else's reaction to that. So her teacher, her best friend, her mom, and the you know other people involved in the play. So she wants to be Charlotte. And basically the story is how is she going to play in this role as a girl when everyone sees her as a boy? And 
This story is really short. Like, it's short. It's probably, I mean, I think it's like five hours on audio. It's probably less than 300 pages. And even the story, this is probably a week of her life. But throughout this week or so of her life, you can see just how much she deals with being misgendered, how there's this internal struggle of, do I tell everyone who I really am? How are people going to react? There are people that treat her differently, you know, bully her, all this kind of stuff. So what I think about this book, it's definitely a middle grade book. Okay. So it's like all of the characters are very the characters. So her brother, Scott, is a boy. Like he's, you know, he's running in, he's riding his bike in the house. He's spraying mud everywhere. He's diving in it. Like he's a boy. Her her best friend, Kate, is definitely a girly girl. She has like 800 makeup palettes. And it's like, yeah, so she's she's definitely a girl. The dad makes 200 dad jokes, you know. So I think that for the purposes of the audience, the author had to make it clear who these characters are. But also another thing about this book is that Melissa is very aware that she is a girl. She is aware that she's a girl. She knows what she wants to be. And she knows actually the actualization of how it gets there. So that is hormones. That's gender reassignment surgeries. That's like, she's a 10-year-old girl that knows a lot. I don't know how common that is, but in this story, she is very aware. And you're in her brain as she's very aware. You know, you get her mother's reaction to, because I do believe she comes out to her mother at some point, and her mother's reaction is kind of like, oh, it's okay, let's just go out for pizza or something. Like, you know, it's like they don't take it serious. One, maybe because she's a 10-year-old, but then two, because I think that parents have a hard time with this. All of them, all Mm -hmm. of the people that seem to really care about her have a hard time with this. I think it's an important book. Like, even if you're an adult, it puts you in the mind of, like, what it's like to be transgender. And, like, I couldn't help but thinking outside the context of the book how difficult this is. Like, this is extremely difficult. Melissa had a level of clarity and a level of being able to articulate herself that I don't think that a lot of kids would have. And so it -hmm. would be even worse to have all of this and not be able to articulate yourself. So I think it's extremely important. I think it would be a great introduction for middle grade kids to ask certain questions and It definitely is, I think the author said it's a book that they wish that they had as as a kid. So I don't know. I recommend that book. I'd certainly recommend it if you know literally nothing about being transgendered, you know nothing about being misgendered and that how that can feel. This book is about, I mean, if you put it on one and a half speed or something like that, you'll finish this book in a couple of hours, a few hours, and like you will be better off for it having known this little kid's experience just trying to play a female character in a play. That's it. Like, that's the whole story. But, like, that little bit of time, you get to see how difficult and how many areas of conflict there are when someone is constantly misgendered. Conflict between themselves, conflict between society. There's quite a bit. So... I recommend it. I recommend it if you have a kid to introduce them to this 
topic, it's a really good book. So that is Melissa, formerly George, by Alex Gino. That's another one I read a long time ago. And I think you make such a good point that you walk away better from it, you know, and right. in, in to having this as a resource for kids to introduce them to the idea in a way that's accessible to them. I think it's awesome. And I'm glad they changed the name. Yeah, they had that. They, the author, had it in a FAQ, which is, you know, why did the name of the book change? It's like I was like saying my own character. I was calling her by a name. She didn't want to be. Oh, you know, that's the other thing is this book has a narrator. The narrator does not misgender Melissa. So that is a little bit confusing because everyone else is misgendering Melissa, but the narrator is not. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so the narrator does not misgender her. And it's just confusing. It's a confusing writing style, but like. But it like, makes sense when it you makes like, sense. No, yes, it makes sense head. like pretty quickly once you realize that George sees herself as Melissa. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Let me bring in another book. This one is uh, The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini. Gosh, and I knew very little about this going in. I picked it up mainly because I'd wanted to read this author before. And I saw this was on a lot of the lists. And then I head over, I popped on over to Goodreads. I'm like, huh, is this popular? (laughs) Oh, it's got (laughs) 2.8 million ratings on Goodreads and a 4.33 rating. I was blown away. I literally know I knew nothing about this book. So let me tell you about it. Well, first, the reason it was challenge and banned was because it includes sexual violence and was thought to lead to terrorism and promote Islam, which I read that. I'm like, excuse me? I, 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 those would not have been my predictions as to why. The Kite Runner is this heartbreaking, multi-generational story, and it's about a friendship between a wealthy boy and the son of his father's servant. And they get caught up in the tragic sweep of history in Afghanistan. Now, it's doubly challenging to read because you have this friendship and the two boys go through this absolutely traumatic event that ultimately ends their friendship. But it's also set up against the country's tumultuous history and Afghanistan's fall from the monarchy through Soviet invasion, the exodus of refugees and the rise of the Taliban. So ultimately, though, this is a story of friendship and betrayal and about the relationship between fathers and sons. In the beginning, I was I was mad. I the the character is Ali. I truly hated him. I was like, why are you doing these things? Now, I hated him in that I knew that was intentional. Like it wasn't because it was poorly written. I thought this book's book actually went on at a very good clip, but I was like so mad at him because he was being so nasty to his friend, but then he really does get a full character arc. I learned a ton about Afghani culture. I knew very little about it. And again, I will say I came to understand the main character and his motivation. And I really liked this book. I, I liked the main themes about family, about the possibility of redemption, who deserves to be forgiven, about good versus bad. And this book is pretty long. It's over 400 pages, but it does take on a lot. And I thought it did so in a very well done way. I think as far as books assigned in schools go, this would have a ton to discuss. I do think that you would need somebody who is skilled in facilitating that type of discussion because I can see how a lot of students, especially if they were from Afghani culture, might feel called out or might feel singled out if you didn't have a facilitator who was able to navigate these conversations and the topics that came up because it is pretty violent in some places. 
However, I don't Mm -hmm. think that takes away from the overall message. I definitely don't think this book deserves to be banned. I'd recommend it if you are interested in a book that is very thoughtful, that is one that will stick with you, is one that will, if you want to cry, I I do think that this book could do it for you. I will say I did the audio and at first I was disappointed because it is narrated by the author, Khaled Hosseini. And I'm like, why did you do that? But then I start. I really leaned into it and I kind of, I appreciated it because it is an own voices book and you really get his accent. You get the way that he wants to pronounce things, the way that Afghans do pronounce things and terminology. So I walked away really appreciating that he did narrate it, even though at first I was like, oh, I wish they would have had somebody else. Overall, I, I highly recommend it. I can see why there's so many people with who love this book and rated it quite highly. This one was The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini. Okay, good. Yes. One of my boys read that. Yeah. And did you in high school? You said you read it with him, right? Mm-hmm. I did. I did read it. I, yes, ish, <laughs> because he wanted to be able to discuss it before, you know, I think he had to write a paper. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was the designated mom, will you read, you know, something to help me yeah. like figure out some themes sort of person in the family. So yeah, I I was very surprised that this is on the list. You know, I understand what you're saying about it, but like, yeah, I'm, it wasn't that long ago that this was not a challenged book because I mean, he hasn't been out of high school that long. Yeah. This came out in so, 2003. So was this part okay. of your son's curriculum? This was on his high school, I want to say junior year or junior year, oh. English book. This was on the list he could choose which oh. what he wanted to read, and he chose this one. Yeah. So there was quite a, a big list to choose from. I think this is a great book to have on a list like that, especially junior seniors absolutely can handle this content. Hmm. Now, I wouldn't yeah. recommend yeah. it for like middle schoolers. It's probably too graphic for middle school, but... <laughs> right. High school, I think, would be fine. Yeah. I ha- Did you say it was challenged or has it been banned? Both. Both? Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, when I say hmm. banned, I don't know if that means like forever or like it, it says it was challenged and banned. And again, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that means it was was pulled off shelves somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I definitely think yeah. it was pulled off okay. shelves somewhere. So, All right. My next book is Trash by Andy Mulligan. And this is a young adult book. So you're looking at middle and high school. It was challenged for language and anti-police sentiment. Yeah, it was challenged in Texas by parents who felt the subject matter was not age appropriate. Now, these were sixth grade parents. So like the beginning of middle school, basically. And it ended up being put back on. So it, it was challenged, but it was not banned. So it ended up being retained in the sixth grade lesson plans. And then it went on to be shortlisted for the 2012 Carnegie Medal. This is the story of three slum-dwelling street kids, Rafael, Gardo, and Rat, who we first meet trying to eke out a living on a landfill site in an unnamed developing country. This is a story that that delves into extreme poverty. It becomes very clear very quickly that their lives are pretty unbearable to most to what most of us would consider bearable and the author illustrates this just so vividly. While they are searching the dump site, which is how they 
find things for money. They find food. While they are doing that, they find something. And that something will lead them on a heroic journey to restore justice. So when they find this something, they make a split-second choice that will end up leading them to a mission that will change their lives. It will also cause them to have to keep a very deadly secret. It is something that involves a crime. It involves the police, and it involves political agendas far beyond what these boys <laughs> would ever have any experience to know. So along the way, once they find this, they will end up embarking on a journey that will take them to various places. And along the way, they are going to encounter corruption and violence, but also kindness and hope. And it's truly a journey that is told from each of the boys' perspectives but we also get the perspectives of a variety of people who are trying to help them along the way. This is a fast-paced book that is billed as a thriller, and it, it definitely was. I was I was really into this book start to finish as far as what was going to happen to these boys. I truly enjoyed like meeting each of these boys. This is a life I have never heard of. I have no I have no experience, I have really no knowledge of this type of life. And it turns out that the author, at the time that he decided to write this book, he was inspired by the main character, Raphael, was inspired by a real-life boy that the author met while he was teaching in Calcutta. So the author was teaching at an international school in Manila, which was also part of a small dump site school. That was run by a Christian charity and much like the school featured in the book, Trash. So at first, I didn't realize all of this. So this book, I think, would be so worthwhile to discuss as far as the life experiences of these kids. There are kids out there in other countries that are living this exact life. And then he turned it, it, but he just, he turned it into a thriller, which I think would keep the attention of young adult age bracket perfectly. Uh, my question for John, the anti-police sentiment in this book, there are many police officers that they come across and they are not nice people. So that's the, un, that's the anti-police sentiment. How do you feel as a police officer when you read about police corruption and police officers in books that are, you know, not given, they're not nice. So therefore the view of police in this book by these boys was one of fear and um, they were scared of them. Yeah. Well, look, that's reality. Like, I think it's reality that not everyone who becomes a police officer is a good person. Not everyone has the best intentions. Not everyone keeps the intentions that they once had. So, I don't know. I mean, when I was a kid, you didn't talk to police. Like, you don't call the police unless somebody's dying or unless <laughs> something really bad is happening. And there's a reason for that. I don't, you know, I think that there are some people that I know in law enforcement who don't recognize it only takes one time to have a bad experience with police to, you know, 
discolor your whole opinion of them. And these are people who are supposed to protect you and supposed to serve. And, you know, they're supposed to be a good part of your community. And when like, it's just not just like someone doing something bad. That happens all the time. This is someone you trust to not do bad things, doing something bad. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens, it is really difficult to like, to mend that bridge when that happens. So I think it comes up in culture and in literature and in movies so much because it happens a lot. I think you are given Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of power as a police officer, at least on an individual basis. And there are some people who definitely cannot handle it. Like they are not able and capable of handling the fact that they have a level of power. So I think it's, you know, uh, certainly not a book being banned for anti-police sentiment. I mean, there's all sorts of movies and games and mm-hmm. cultural, li- right? Like where corrupt cops True. is just yep. a trope, right? In movies and TV right. shows all the time. So, uh, and again, I think it happens because that's reality. So yeah, whenever I come across it, I don't really, you know, it doesn't, like, I'm a police officer now, but I haven't always been a police officer. So, <laughs> like, I came across it before, and I pretty much have the same reaction now. But also, I think it's a very difficult job, and it's hard to find someone who has the emotional temperament to be a police officer. Um, like, if you are a citizen, I think you would just hope that you come across somebody who does, who's not having a bad day, mm-hmm. or is not on, like, 18 hours of overtime and, like, three hours of sleep. So, there, I think there's a lot of problems, but I think it's a common thing. And that's why it comes up in books a lot and comes up in movies and TV shows a lot. Good answer. <laughs> you answered that. I, I was just, I, I've been waiting to ask you that. And I was, I'm so, yeah, you answered that so well. Thanks. I'm chock full. It of makes sense. Now. It makes sense. <laughs> chock yeah. full. Of, full of good ideas. <laughs> full of good ideas. Okay. Thank you, John. So that was Trash by Andy Mulligan. Are we done? We did it. Wow, we did. We did. We did. Band episode. The, the band. episode that finally gets us canceled. No, no. <laughs> oh, man. Don't cancel. You're canceled. We're going to be trending on Twitter. Oh, <laughs> Lord help us. No, I think this was a great discussion. And thank you all. I know this is going to be a longer episode, but we really wanted to have a thoughtful discussion over banning books and what that looks like and censorship. So hopefully you walked away with a little more knowledge and some resources if you do have more knowledge than us or have thoughts on banning books or ideas, hey, like, hey, I would love to get out of here. <laughs> I'd love to hear, you know, and continue the dialogue on social media. But thanks as always. Thanks, John. Thanks, thanks, thanks John, for joining us. You fit in seamlessly. I don't wow. know why I'm surprised, it's but every it's all. Every <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. You fit into our format really well. That's it for today. We thank you for spending a part of your day with us. Links to all the books mentioned can be found in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, you can help us by following wherever you listen and by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It truly helps us get our show out to new listeners and grows our audience. And don't forget, if you would like access to exclusive bonus content, including our episode three of Criminally Booked, you can join us for $5 a month on patreon.com slash etc. Feedback and questions about the show can be sent to booktalketc at gmail.com. You can also connect with us both at booktalketc on Instagram, Tina at TBR, etc., and me, Renee, at It's Book Talk. Talk to you next week. In the meantime, remember... Everything is better with books. Hey. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
Bye. Bye. Do it. Wait, do we have to, uh, can I do the intro? No, get out of here. Welcome to Book Talk, Etc., <laughs> a podcast bound to blow your TV up. Here we go. All right.